Hello, everybody. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And we're the Old Dogs. In this episode, the Old Dogs ramble about optimism, because our first pod nugget is about how optimism can extend your life. We're going to celebrate a woman who, at age 100, is publishing her first collection of poems. We are going to mourn the last of the toll collectors. We're going to ask you about that funny feeling you sometimes get in your ear. Is it a spider? And we're going to review a great movie about the life and times of Molly Ivins. The Old Dog's interview is going to be with Mark Grossberg, a lawyer for many years. He is just about to publish his first novel. Stay with us. Hey, Jim, it's that time again. What's on your mind? I would like to talk about optimism. Okay, you? tell me some more. Well, how do you feel about your day? When you wake up in the morning, are you optimistic about your week, about what's coming up in the world? I tend to have kind of mixed feelings about it, but have some optimism about it. What do you, what do you think? Generally, I would say I look forward to every day because I have tried to stay engaged with life. Mm-hmm. I look forward to getting together with friends. Uh, I look forward to working on this podcast. I look forward to reading books that I've always wanted to read, and I have a bunch of them backed up on my bookshelf. Uh, you know the old saw, is your glass half full or half empty? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I usually only drink half a glass, so it's <laughs> a diet that I'm on. But, what do you do with the rest of the glass? Uh, I pretend it's full. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I would say I am an optimistic person. How about you? Yeah, um, I'd have to qualify that because there are some big issues that uh, I'm very concerned about. Uh, you know, politics and the, the nature of the world in general and so on. But as far as my own life is concerned, I still feel like uh, I've got a future and I'm optimistic about my future and I'm optimistic about you know my relationship with my wife and with my kids and all of that, looking forward to continuing to have great uh, times with all of them. So you're saying that you're basically optimistic if you don't read the papers? Is that- <laughs> I don't start thinking about, yeah, the big picture. Yeah. Um, the closer I look, the more optimistic I am. Let me put it that way. Yeah, I think I think I buy into that myself. Uh, I, I really look forward to uh, starting the day each day. Okay, so you're basically, you would say you're an optimistic person. I would say that. Well, that's good news, Paul, because our first pod nugget has to do with the fact that optimism seems to prolong life. Ah. So are you optimistic about a long life? Well, I'm looking forward to prolonging my life yeah. through optimism, yes. Yeah. Uh, do you have enough material if our podcast keeps on going, let's say, for another 20 years? I, I may have to just do the podcast in my room. <laughs> <laughs> Researchers have found that optimistic folks not only enjoy life, but they enjoy it longer. This item is from the Washington Post for August 31st, 2019. Apparently, optimistic people were 50 to 70 percent more likely to reach age 85 and beyond, according to a study of more than 70,000 people. This indicates that non-genetic factors like a cheery outlook can have an effect on lifespan. So it doesn't matter if your parents had a long life. 
you could have a grumpy short life. The study didn't determine why optimistic people lived longer, but there are some theories. Perhaps optimists are better able to handle stress, or maybe they have a healthier lifestyle with less drinking and smoking and more exercise. They also could have more friends and a supportive network because of their cheerful outlook. At any rate, life is certainly more enjoyable if you are optimistic. So if you find yourself complaining because your glass is half empty, cheer up and ask for a refill. I'll drink to that. Or get a smaller glass. Sarah Yerkes has had several creative careers, but she may have set a record when she published her first book of poems at the age of 100. This pod nugget is from the Washington Post for July 28, 2019. Many years ago, Sarah graduated from Harvard University's Graduate School of Design and ended up as a landscape architect after winning a contest. Decades later, while in her 50s, she was looking for a new challenge and started taking sculpture classes. She worked as a sculptor into her 80s when her stamina started to diminish. She started looking around for another artistic endeavor that was less physical. A friend recommended a monthly poetry class that he attended. Poetic expression was a stretch for Sarah, who was raised in a more repressive age, but she kept at it, finding parallels between shaping a sculpture and writing a poem. On turning 100, Sarah released her first book of poems titled Days of Blue and Flame. The publisher is Passager Books at the University of Baltimore, which focuses on older writers. Sarah certainly qualifies on that count. Congratulations to Sarah Yerkes for her latest and hopefully not her last creative career. Cashless payments have speeded up traffic on the nation's toll roads, but at the cost of lost jobs for the human toll takers. This item appeared in the New York Times for July 23, 2019. There are more than 1,200 toll takers along the length of the New York State Thruway. Next year, they will all be replaced by a cashless tolling system that automatically charges vehicles equipped with an EasyPass reader or snaps a picture of the license plate of unequipped cars. That leads to a bill by mail eventually. Nearly half of the nation's 336 tolled highways, bridges, and tunnels have cashless tolling. Officials say that the cashless system is more convenient, reduces traffic, and eliminates polluting from idling cars. It also allows highways to better manage traffic flow by using variable pricing. Okay, I get it. It's faster, cleaner, and more cost-effective. It makes sense on a lot of levels, except the human level. One veteran toll taker explained that he does more than count money. He gives directions to lost drivers, he offers hotel and restaurant tips, and watches for vehicles wanted by the state police. You know, Paul, this conjures up a picture of an army of hungry and lost tourists trapped on New York tollways until they run out of gas. It could happen. Here is a pod nugget that may give you the creepy shivers. It is an eerie but true story that comes from the Washington Post for August 23, 2019. Susie Torres woke up with a feeling that she had water trapped in her ear. A familiar but irritating sensation after swimming. Except she hadn't been swimming. A trip to the clinic solved the puzzle. A doctor extracted a dime-sized brown recluse spider from her ear. Mm. Fortunately, the spider didn't bite her because the brown recluse spiders are poisonous. 
Miss Torres had no idea how the spider ended up in her auditory canal, but since then she has slept with cotton balls in her ears to prevent another unwanted visitor.、Mm-hmm. Now, how do you feel about that? Going to bed? Do you feel optimistic about that, Paul? Well, I'm wondering if she has bull weevils in her ear now. <laughs> Raise hell. The life and times of Molly Ivins is one of those movies you see. Either because you know who Molly Ivins is, or because someone told you you have to see it. If you know who Molly Ivins is, you know she was one of those bigger-than-life Texas women who are more often celebrated than listened to. This is a shame. Molly Ivins was a journalist with a rapier wit who had no off switch when it came to skewering politicians. Texas politicians were her favorite, but she often reached far afield for a memorable target. Now, this commentary isn't meant as a review. That's much better left to those who do it for a living. But Molly always represented to me the best combination of satire and truth in reporting. The movie succeeds in showing her best attributes. As well as a lot of her famous wit, it covers practically her entire life, from privileged beginnings in the Tony Houston neighborhood of River Oaks to her final days fighting cancer with humor and energy. Her early clashes with the upper class are used as a possible reason for why she went after class divisions so ruthlessly. Her personal demons, including a fondness for alcohol, are exposed as perhaps justification for columns that often went far beyond acerbic into the realm of battery acid. Janice Engel's tribute to Ivins doesn't cover everything she said. She once remarked that the Texas legislature will soon be in session, leaving many a village without its idiot. But there's plenty there to give the viewer a good dose of one of the nation's great journalists. Past or present. Once more, the movie is "Raise Hell: The Life and Times of Molly Ivins." Mark Grossberg is a tax lawyer who grew up in Houston, Texas. During his long career, he's kept a sharp eye and ear open for what goes on in this cosmopolitan city. The result is that in his seventies, Mark is about to have his first novel published. That's all about what goes on. Behind the closed doors of power. Here's Mark on how he came to this point in his life. Mark, not long ago, I was surprised to find out that you have just completed writing a novel called "The Best People." And the reason I was surprised by that is that I've known you as a guy whose career has been in the legal profession now, going on what over fifty years. I've been doing the work for more than fifty years. Yes, and. I presume you enjoyed it, or I guess you wouldn't have done it that long. Yes, I had a passion for what I was doing and the clients I was doing it for, and I still do to some extent. But I found there are other things that I've left on the table that I want to get to. And what things would those be? Well, spending more time with family and finishing this book, and then now that it's finished, making sure people. Know about it so that they'll might read it. <laughs> well, let's back up a second. Suddenly, you're talking about a book. What gave you the urge to do a book? I think I always wanted to be a writer since I was about 16. This particular book, I got an idea 23 years ago when I sat down and did a first draft, and then didn't touch it for about eight years, and then touched it, and then really got in earnest on it in 2008. So it took me about ten years to write this book. Wow!、Uh, but the last three or four, I wasn't practicing law 
nearly to the same uh, intensity that I had, so I had time to work on it. So the book deals with your experience in the legal profession, right? Yes, yes. Uh, it, it deals with Houston and practicing law. It's two things that I know something about, anyway. Well, you're a lifetime Houstonian, so I would guess so. So are you going to have to go into hiding now once it's published? I mean, do you have uh, any secrets you have revealed? Uh, it's fiction, so all of it's invented, so I don't have anything I have to worry about. Are you sure? Am I going to recognize myself in this book, even though the name has been changed to protect the not-so-innocent? No, there are only three recognizable characters, um, uh, one of them has passed away, and I only said nice things about her. <laughs> one of them is an Italian restaurant owner who's a dear friend of mine, Tony Vallone, but he has a different name in the book, um, Luigi Gante. And then there's a Jewish tax lawyer, because I gave myself a cameo role. But they're very small. All the major characters are invented, totally. You know, you uh, two different kinds of writing are involved with uh, depositions in your legal work. And creative writing, was that kind of tough to switch gears? Well, yes, because uh, in my legal writing, I never did any intentional fiction. And, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there was a switch gears, but it was, it, even the kind of law that I practiced required creativity. So, yes, it was a switch, uh, and I, I knew the switch. So tell me, uh, we've talked to some other writers before, uh, do you have a, a sacred space that you have to go to when you're writing, or do you do it in front no. of a TV set and a TV dinner? <laughs> I've done it in lots of different places. I think if I finish the second book, I would be a lot more disciplined. How so? Well, I would set a special time every day, and whether I was inspired or not, I would just write it. I would just write for those two hours. Well, what was your um, your regimen for this book then? For the longest time, I had no regimen, and then I took off two months one summer, and an, a month another summer, and then I just started working every day. Uh, I had editors, and later on, I had readers. Uh, I started taking a few classes. I wish I'd done all of that before, but I would say the last four years before I finished the book, I worked on it pretty much like I would if it was a job. So how did you connect with a publisher and an editor? How did that work? Okay, well, the editors, I got recommendations, and, and some were good, and some were not so good. And some were expensive and worth it, and some were expensive and not worth it, and some were very reasonable and totally worth it. In connection with a publisher, a couple of my friends... Andrea White and Lois Stark had used Greenleaf Publishing, and I contacted them, and they seem, and still do, like a very good house to have published the book with. So you had some pretty good connections to start with. I understand that you've been spending a lot of time promoting this book. The book doesn't actually come out until October the 8th, but my first Reading signing is in Dallas on the 15th at Interabang. Hmm. And then uh, on the 17th, Brazos Bookstore. And then there's just a whole slew of them. There's three more in Houston and San Antonio, Fort Worth, Austin, 
San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York, and Asheville, North Carolina. Wow. How did you get all these promotional gigs? Okay, the, the publicist got me the bookstores. Um, I only selected uh, cities where I knew enough people that I could send email invitations so that somebody would show up because notwithstanding my giant ego, I realized that I am a first-time author who no one's ever heard of. And so unless somehow they've heard of me, they're not going to show up at a reading. Okay. So do you think that from now on you're going to try to balance uh, legal work with writing, or is one of them going to win out? Oh, I think I'll spend more time writing than practicing law, but I'm not going to give up entirely practicing law. There's certain kinds of cases that I will take if I like the person or company that uh, brings it to me. But the the writing part is as much of a jealous mistress as the law is. And I think at this point in my life, if it's a choice, the writing will win. Before we go any further, Mark, let's talk about the book itself. How did you come up with this title, The Best People? The title came to me as I was writing the first draft. But The Best People is sort of ironic uh, because everybody in this book are not necessarily the best people. <laughs> the subtitle, it's a tale of trials and errors. Frankly, the publisher suggested it because just about two months ago, a book came out about Trump's uh, appointees, and it's called The Best People. So <laughs> there may be some irony in that title, too. Well, you could change it to <laughs> the, the Better People. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that would get you some notoriety. So if you had to come up with a description of your book in a very short sentence, is it a mystery? Is it a detective? Is it? I would describe it as a social satire and legal drama. Uh, try to imagine a supersized, red-haired, my cousin Vinny meets the bonfire of the vanities in Houston. So supposing I were to buy this book and I live in, oh, Keokuk, Iowa, uh, would I be able to mm -hmm. understand what's going on? Would I have enough general context? Totally. So I wouldn't yeah, need to know totally, the yeah. ins and outs of Houston or politics or... I think I try to do it for like, maybe if a Martian looked at it, uh, they could understand it too. So, uh, but it will inform whoever the reader is, whether he's from Keokuk or the Bronx, you know, it will inform them about the rhythm of this city and how it's a true meritocracy and how anybody who works hard can really make it here. Mark, in the um, grand scheme of your life, would mm -hmm. you say that deciding to write a novel, would you say this was something that you had to do and you were just waiting for the opportunity? That's interesting. I've sort of asked myself that question before. I had to write a book, okay? That, that was just something that I had to do. What I didn't know I had to do was, once you've written a book, there's so much more. It's just the beginning, you know. After all the editors and, and getting a publisher, and I feel like I'm a cottage industry. I've got a <laughs> publicist and a social media consultant and an email consultant, a virtual book tour consultant, all kinds. Of, I mean, you have no idea. But here's the deal. I wrote this book. It took me a long time to write it. Who knows if I'll ever write another book. And maybe it'll make it, and maybe it won't. But I don't want to have to 
wonder, did I leave anything on the table that could have made it do better? So I just went all out. Uh, we like to end our interviews, Mark, with uh, insights from the person we're interviewing about how how to stay vital and engage with life as you uh, get into your 70s, as we all are. I, beginning in 2015, I just sort of changed the way I lived. I had no more responsibilities. My, my children were grown and responsible for themselves and their children. Uh, I went of counsel to the law firm so I could come and go as I pleased without having to account for a certain number of hours. And I started going wherever my green light told me the intersection might be interesting. And I've just sort of done things on impulse. I, try, I live in the now uh, because now is, frankly, all we have, especially at our age. And the other thing that was even more liberating than that was that, and this is harder, I accepted the consequences of all the choices that I've made in life. And I just, I go forward. I'm informed by the past, but I don't dwell on it. I know there's a future, but right now, this is what I have. And I'm trying to enjoy it as much as I can. Well, it looks like we made it through another episode. If you enjoyed it, let us know. Or if you know somebody who'd be fun to interview, tell us about them. You can reach us at our website, olddogspodcast.com. And hey, keep on howling at the moon.